Our reading today comes from Lamentations 4, verses 1 to 10. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has become greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They have become their food, the destruction of the daughters of my people. Well, good morning. For those of you who I have not yet met, my name is John. And today we are looking at Lamentations 4. And I want us to explore the question, where do broken sinners go? Uh, where do we go? Where do we turn when we are at the end of ourselves? And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the story of Jerusalem from Lamentations 4 um, under three topics. The first is, where are they? The second is, how did they get there? And the third is, where can they go now? So the first question, where are they? Um, when you read Lamentations 4, the, the real punch, the real uh, punch of the poetry comes from the imagery that the poet uses to describe what he sees. And what he sees is a, is a contrast between how things were in Jerusalem, the holy city of God, and how things are now after the invasion of Babylon. And said in another way, we might say it's a contrast between how things ought to be and how things are. How things ought to be and how things are. So if you read through, what you'll see is what was precious is now worthless. What was healthy is now decayed. What was bright and colorful is now monochrome and gray. What was pure is now defiled. The, the holy, vibrant city of Jerusalem is now a destitute wasteland. In fact, such is the condition of the survivors of the invasion that in verse 9, the poet says, happier were the victims of the sword. What he's saying is it's, it's better to be dead than to live in a place like this. This is what sin does. You know, it, it takes what is good and true and beautiful and it distorts it, it twists it, and it destroys it. But the poet is not only going to show the contrast between what ought to be and what is, but he's also going to show the, the breadth across the society. So the, the contrast between what ought to be and what is might be called the depth of Jerusalem's brokenness, but the pervasiveness across the society might be called the breadth of their brokenness. So in, in the opening 10 verses, there's, 
a horrific picture of the state of the children of Jerusalem. Babies being left to starve, children begging for food, and finally, potentially the most horrific verse in the entire Bible in verse 10, the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Mothers so desperate themselves have abandoned their children. Those who are supposed to feed their children are feeding on their children. It's horrific. The poet is going to transition from talking about the weakest in society to the strongest, the supposed strongest, the leaders, the the prophets and the priests. And again, it reads like a shocking contrast. A contrast between what we expect from our leaders and what we get. The priests who were supposed to exercise spiritual vision are now wandering in the streets blind. The ones who were supposed to be pure and holy and set apart for God are now defiled and unclean. The ones who were supposed to be honored in the community are now dishonored and shame. And the picture that we're given is this, that at every level of society, there is both sinfulness and the effects of sinfulness. Christopher Wright summarizes it like this. The whole community, from top to bottom, from the elders to the infants, from the king in his palace to the mother in her kitchen, has been turned upside down and shaken out and left shattered and scattered like trash littering the streets. Sin that causes brokenness, brokenness that causes sin. And as the spiral continues, the distance between what ought to be and what is grows deeper and wider, becoming unmanageable and unimaginable. This is where they're at. And this is the nature of sin. Not only does it destroy what is good and true and beautiful, but like a plague, it doesn't just stay with us. It spreads from us, through society, through our communities, through our families, from the leaders of the nation to the people of the nation, from one generation to the next generation, And the question is, what do we do with a text like this? It's heavy. Other than when we approach it in our Bible reading plan, skip past it super quickly, what do we do with it? I wonder wonder if, like me, you have listened to the story in this series and thought it's all pretty extreme and all pretty unrelatable. I mean, when was the last time you were part of a besieged city? Uh, there's just there's just not much connection between my life and their life and before we skip past it before we move on i wanted to ask the question are we are we so different are we so disconnected is their extreme story so different to mine because i think if we look a little deeper we will recognize that we are prone to the same sorts of sins that they were prone to so While we've looked at where they are, the state of Jerusalem, broken in their sin, while that feels so unfamiliar to us, so distant from from us, I want us to look at how they got there, because maybe we'll see that it's not so unfamiliar. Maybe we're more like them than we like to imagine. So, how did they get there? I'm sure there are more than I can identify here, but I've identified two root sins that I think led towards Jerusalem's destruction that we see in Lamentations 4. Uh, The first is, is an arrogance towards sin, a false sense of security. We read in 
Verse 12, the poet writes, The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Now, I don't think we're supposed to read this as if uh, the kings of Babylon and Egypt are sitting around thinking that Jerusalem is in, in some way an impenetrable city that they can't overthrow, because obviously they could and they did. This is much more likely a, a projection of the, of the security that Jerusalem felt in themselves. In short, what they're saying is, this will never happen to us. This will, it could never happen to us. And maybe that's what we think when we read Lamentations. As I said, it's, it's all pretty extreme and surely, surely we'll never arrive at that point. But, but are we so different? Um, I remember a few years back, my brother said something to me that I, I've never forgotten. Um, a, f- a friend of mine had been foolish and it led to the destruction of his marriage. And my brother said to me, he said, John, you know you're not above that, don't you? You know you're not above that. You know that, the, that you are just as capable of the sin that led to the destruction of his marriage. That you are just as capable of that sin as anyone else. And that that sin is just as capable of destroying your marriage as anyone else's. Church, there is a... There is an arrogance towards the destructive nature of sin that ironically makes us more vulnerable to it. And we would do well to heed the famous words of Proverbs 16 that says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So here's the question. Do we belittle sin? Have we forgotten the destructive nature of sin? Are we arrogant towards it? Have we presumed on the safety of Jerusalem? Have we said that the sin that led to the destruction of his life won't lead to the destruction of mine? The the sin that led to the corruption of her character won't lead to the corruption of mine? It's arrogance. It's pride preceding destruction. You know, it's a, it's a real arrogance in us when we don't take the Bible seriously when it says that sin leads to death. You know, it's a real arrogance in us when we don't take Jesus seriously. As Christians, taking Jesus seriously when he says that we should take drastic action against sin before it destroys us. It's arrogance when we believe that Jerusalem is safe because it wasn't. It's arrogance to read Lamentations and think that it could never be us because it could. And here is the sad irony of the situation that we see. Israel didn't believe that Jerusalem could be destroyed and now the poet, years on, is looking back and he doesn't believe it could ever be fixed. The first route that we identify is arrogance. The second that we might see is is deafness. Deafness. In verse 13, the poet says, This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shared in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. Now, we know, don't we, that the role of prophets is to be a messenger of God. Their role was often to speak the truth to power, to to redirect a wandering nation back to God. 
And when we look at our Bibles, we see the book of Lamentations nestled in among the book of the prophets. So you've got Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, Hosea. They're all, all prophets called by God to be God's mouthpiece, called by God to redirect a wandering nation, to be his voice to the people. But when we read Lamentations, as has been, it's been noted before, God appears to be silent. And the question we should ask ourselves is, is why? Why is God silent? Well, maybe, maybe one answer, not the only answer, but maybe one answer to the question is because no one was listening. Maybe no one was listening. You see, the very people that were supposed to be called by God to be God's mouthpiece to, to uh, call out the sin of the nation were themselves sinning. In fact, it says in our verse that they had become murderous themselves. And if you, if you do a little digging and see who is it that they're murdering, well, let's look at Jeremiah 26 and the unfortunate story of Uriah. It says he prophesied against the city and against his land in words like those of Jeremiah. And they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to King Jehoiakim who struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. You see, the prophets that we read about are actually killing the real prophets, the true prophets. You see, at the, at the root of Jerusalem's problem was not a silent God, but a deaf people. In fact, it was a people silencing God. They'd become a people so inclined away from the challenge of God that they would make moves to silence God. The question is, are we so different? I'm hoping that no one has killed any prophets recently. Um, but maybe we've ignored them. Maybe we've silenced them. Maybe you're like me and you're not necessarily deaf to God, but you have what we might call selective hearing. You see, the, the reason why we don't usually gravitate to, what, to, to books like Lamentations is not only because they're obscure and difficult to read, it's because they're challenging as well, isn't it? It's because there are, passages, there are passages in the Bible that really confront us with our own sin. And we always have this option to, to ignore it, to, to put the Bible to one side or to, to go to the verses that feel a little better. Israel had cut themselves off from the word of God. And church, we, we must never do that. We must never do that. So, we've seen where they are. They're in a mess. They felt the destruction of their own sin. And we've looked at how they got there, this, this dangerous combination of an arrogance towards sin and a deafness towards God. But now I want to end by looking at the question, where can they go now? Where can they go now? In verse 17, the poet says, Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save us. The poet here is saying that the people of God were, were looking for someone to save them from the Babylonians. And we're not told who this nation is. Potentially it's Edom, who are mentioned later, and some scholars think it's Egypt. Um, but I, I think this f helps to frame the central question here, where, where do broken sinners go? 
Where do we turn when we're at the end of ourselves? And, and what I'm going to suggest is that we have three options. In fact, Israel had three options. We always have three options when we're in our sin and we're looking for somewhere to turn. And honestly, at a glance, none of the options are very good. The first option we have is to turn inwards, is to save ourselves. Um, the problem with that is it's not really an option, is it? When we look at Jerusalem, uh, they, they couldn't save themselves. The point is, if we're at the end of ourselves, we can't save ourselves. And, and simply telling someone to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps isn't helpful, is it? Particularly if they have been invaded by Babylon. The second option that we have is the option that they chose, that we just read about. They looked outwards to a nation to save them. But again, if you take a second to think about it, this isn't a good option either. When you think about who Egypt are, for example, when you think about the archetypal oppressors of the Old Testament, you've got Babylon and Egypt. If we know anything about Israel, it's that they spent time in bondage in Egypt and they were liberated by God from Egypt. And so looking to Egypt to save us from Babylon is simply to exchange one oppressor for another oppressor, one form of bondage for another form of bondage. And I don't know about you, I wonder if you've, wonder if you've tried that. It doesn't go well. We know it, don't we, from experience. When we've exchanged one form of oppression for another, it's like exchanging the bondage of Egypt with the bondage of Babylon. And if we listen to the poet, we know that they can't save us any more than we can save ourselves. But there's a third option. Now, this is the option that you're all anticipating. But it's also an option that I don't think we should presume is available to us. The option, of course, I'm talking about is turning to God, to turn upwards to God. Now, the reason I say that we shouldn't presume on it is because that when we sin, we've heard, haven't we, in, in previous sermons, that when we sin, we, we make an enemy with God. In Lamentations 2, we read, the Lord has become like an enemy. You see, what we experience when we sin is not just the destruction of our sin, but it is also the judgment of a holy and righteous God. And so the idea of turning to God is not necessarily an option. And I don't know about you, but when I sin, often I, I don't want to turn to God. Often I don't feel like I can turn to God. So here's where we're left. We can't save ourselves. The nations are idols. They can't save us either. And we can't turn to God because we have made an enemy of him in our sin. So where do we turn? Where do broken sinners turn? What we need is what a friend of mine calls a but God moment. Now, I know in saying that, this is going to be the only thing you remember from this sermon, but let me explain a but God moment with Ephesians 2. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. 
and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see? You see what it's describing there? Dead in our sins, unable to save ourselves, oppressed by the enemy who has us in bondage, but ultimately our predicament seems lost because we have made an enemy of God. Children of wrath, sons of disobedience. But praise God, it doesn't end there. Verse 4, but God. That's the but God moment. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Do you see what needed to happen? Do you see that because we couldn't turn to God in our sin, we required God to turn to us in our sin? This, this is the gospel that we believe, church. Not that we can turn to God, but that God turned to us. You see, Lamentations is a dark book. I'm sure you felt it this series. And Lamentations 4 is a particularly dark chapter. But among the darkness, there is this faint crack of light. Look with me at verse 22. It says, The punishment of your sin, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. What we have in this verse is a comfort to Jerusalem that the punishment for their sin will end. But we know, don't we? We know that these words are a foreshadow of what we would have ultimately in Christ. As Jesus takes upon himself our sin on the cross and cries out as an echo of this verse, it is finished, it is accomplished. And so we claim this verse for ourselves in Christ. That the punishment of our sin is accomplished and that he will keep us in exile no longer Christ City, where do broken sinners go? They can't turn to themselves. They can't run to the nations. But they can run back to God. Because as Romans 5.10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Where do broken sinners go? We go to God in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we see the results of our sin. We see it in our lives and the world around us. And we confess that we too fall into the same patterns of sin that entangle us. But thanks be to our Lord Jesus Christ who made a way for broken sinners like us to come home. Amen. Now, if you are part of a house church, you can begin to prepare the wine and juice and bread for communion. And you can remember what it means that God made a way for sinners to come home.